Welcome to the Anxiety Slayer series. Our mission is to assist you with creating more peace and tranquility in your life through anxiety release exercises and supportive tools created to slay your anxiety. Welcome to Anxiety Slayer. I'm Shan Vanderleek. With over 4.6 million downloads and hundreds of podcasts, Anxiety Slayer is a podcast for anyone who's suffering from PTSD, panic attacks, stress, and anxiety. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to leading clinical psychologist and cognitive behaviorist, Dr. Jennifer Gutman. Dr. Gutman's mission is to use her experience and expertise to help you realize there is a path to sustainable life satisfaction through a belief in your inherent lovability. Offering over two decades of experience in the field of mental health, Dr. Gutman is committed to helping people of all ages and backgrounds realize their path to life satisfaction. This includes facing any fear by using this feeling as positive motivation to propel and compel them to move forward in enjoying the best of what life has to offer. Dr. Gutman has been featured as a contributor and or has written articles in over 20 nationally recognized publications, TV, and radio shows. She has lectured around the country on effective cognitive behavioral techniques for treating mental health issues and also mentors students in the doctoral program at Long Island University. Welcome, Dr. Gutman. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you and your audience today. Oh, thank you so much. I'd like to dive right in and talk to you about how can cognitive behavior therapy help our listeners who are suffering with anxiety find relief? I usually suggest to people that there are four techniques that I think can be helpful in uh, helping people combat their anxiety. The first one is that I like to suggest to people that they identify and break patterns of thinking errors. And there are four types of thinking errors, fortune-telling, magnification, minimization, and all-or-none thinking. I'd like to just go into a little bit of detail about each one of those. Fortune-telling is expecting bad things to happen. Magnification is when you filter in negative events. Minimization is filtering out positive events. All-or-none thinking is black and white thinking or thinking in absolutes with no gray areas. What I suggest to people is that they engage in sort of a forensic analysis of their thinking, identifying the thinking errors that they have and then working to balance them. Frequently, what I ask clients to do is to challenge themselves to come up with evidence to support the maladaptive thinking. And when they're often lacking evidence, that helps to eradicate the the maladaptive or negative thinking patterns. So what I would suggest that people do is they take a sheet of paper, write down the situation, write down the mood associated with the situation, rate the mood on a scale of one to five, with five being the most intensely they felt the mood and one being the least intensely they felt felt the mood. Write down the negative thought that they have associated with the situation. And then think about the thinking error that might be associated with that negative thought, whether it's fortune telling, magnification, minimization, or all or none thinking. The negative thought will have a thinking error in it. 
And what you need to ask yourself is what is the evidence that this negative thought is true? The majority of the time you will not have evidence to support the negative thought. And then the idea would be to balance the negative thought and say to yourself, okay, if I don't have evidence to support this, what's a more balanced way to think about the situation in reality than the negative maladaptive way that I've been thinking about it currently? And that will help eradicate some of that thinking. Oh, that's really helpful. You're known for creating and teaching a program called Sustainable Life Satisfaction. I automatically went to thinking of it as SLS. I don't know if you if you uh, shorten it that way sometimes or not. Yes, I did. Okay. I do. I shorten it all <laughs> so, the time. So <laughs> how can how can SLS help our listeners improve their self worth? One of the major techniques about SLS or sustainable life satisfaction is to learn to become comfortable with fear. I encourage people to embrace fear instead of run from it because within becoming comfortable with fear is a belief in your competency and coping ability. And when you become comfortable with your fear, you find that being in charge of your fear instead of your anxiety or your fear being in charge of you, that you become more empowered in life. And the more empowered you are in life, you can find more sustainable life satisfaction. For that end, I encourage people to face the fear daily so that they feel like their fear becomes a co-captain in their lives. And by having fear as your co-captain or sous chef in your life, then you will always have confidence in your ability to manage higher stress situations. By doing that and living on sort of the edge of your feelings of competency, then you develop more self-respect, a sense of self-confidence. And when people live in that realm of their lives, they have more of a sense of self-satisfaction as opposed to feeling like they're more homeostatic and not sure if they're living in the realm of their competency. That usually yields a much higher sense of self-satisfaction. And you notice today, and I'm sure you see in your practice and your experience that there's so much fear-based media coming at us and fear-based thinking. And oh my gosh, if you pay attention to it too much, it'll it just, you, I can hardly believe how much there is. Uh, we often talk about that on, on the podcast is that sometimes filtering out things like too much media or filter, filtering out the energy vampires in, in your life or understanding that we all have this fear that we face, but that there are things that you can do about it. And some of that's that, like I said, that media minimization, but also um, learning how to work through the sustainable life satisfaction teachings that, that you offer. Would you kindly walk us through the six core techniques that make up sustainable life satisfaction? Sure. So the first technique is Closing, it's important that people close tasks in their life and not just start them. A lot of people start a lot of tasks in their lives and they don't finish them. So people come into my practice saying that they feel like they have imposter syndrome or they feel like they're frauds in their lives. And the reason that they feel like that is because although they may be finishing one task in one aspect of their lives, they're not finishing tasks in all aspects of their lives. So they may be finishing tasks at work, but they're not finishing tasks in their home lives, or they're not finishing tasks 
with friends. And those tasks are haunting them. So when they get compliments at work for being closers, let's say, they know that there's other tasks and other aspects of their lives that they're not closing. And they find it hard to accept these kinds of compliments. And they don't feel good about themselves. And that continues to yield this feeling of imposter syndrome, even though they feel successful at work. And that erodes their sense of self and that erodes their self-confidence and in turn erodes their satisfaction with their lives. My suggestion is that they start start to look at all aspects of their lives, not just at work, their, their work life, their home life, their life with their friends, and start to look at all of those things that might be haunting them that are left uncompleted in their lives, make lists of what those things are, and then slowly start to cross off the things on their list that are left unclosed, whether it, it be uh, filing things or um, completing tasks at home, bills, um, getting your passports updated, whatever it is, um, you know, getting in touch with old friends, putting things in albums. It doesn't matter. Any niggling things that are haunting you and bothering you are things that are in the back of your mind bothering you and making you feel like you're not living up to your competency level. As you start to cross them off, people start to feel empowered, they feel better about themselves, and that yields more life satisfaction. So that's the first component is closing. The importance of the six components is that they be done all together, coalesce together, and not one of them alone will not create life satisfaction. Okay. The second one is decision-making. A lot of people delegate decision-making to other people in their lives. So they don't want to be responsible for the decisions that they're making because they feel if they make the wrong decision, they they don't want to be responsible for the consequences of having made the decision. So they're happy to either delegate the decision to either a friend or a family member or somebody else, and it doesn't actually matter the size of the decision. People are willing to delegate small decisions and large decisions. I've had people delegate decisions as small as picking a restaurant or a nail polish color. And I've had people delegate large decisions as large as which job to take or which school to go to. And the reason that they do that is because they feel that other people may know them better than they even know themselves. Or they feel that a consensus is a better way to make a decision than to make a decision based on their authenticity. Is this where we get into people pleasing then as well? People-pleasing is actually a separate component. Oh, okay. On its own. Uh, The thing with the decision-making is that people get very caught up in the idea that there are right or wrong decisions. The reason that people believe there are right or wrong decisions has a lot to do with two things. One, social media. Social media gives people the idea that they're, by looking at social media, it looks like people have figured out the right way. Everybody looks happy, it looks glossy, it looks like everybody has it figured out, except they don't. And by looking at social media, people don't recognize that everybody's guessing. And so because people are trying to race or chase the right way, like they're doing through social media, what happens is they feel like there must be a right decision to make. They struggle with believing that someone else must know that right decision. That's one reason. The other reason is that when we're children, our families sometimes second-guess our decision-making. They second-guess our decision-making because they feel like they don't want us to get hurt. 
they second guess their decision making because of the experience they've had over the course of their lives. So they bring their experiences to the table, second guessing our decisions. And that erodes our confidence in our decision making. The problem is that as our confidence in our decision making erodes, then our confidence in ourselves erodes. If you put 10 people together and you give them a choice between option A and option B, and you ask them to choose with the same set of guidelines, some people will choose option A, some people will choose option B, and neither one of them will be wrong. The important thing to re- for people to recognize is that no choice is a choice that is without the option to change. So as long as people have the creativity of mind and the flexibility of thought to realize that if you make a decision that you're not happy with the outcome, then you can create a door that is, has a, uh, an outcome that will be a close approximation of the initial choice, then you can freely make a decision liberated from that feeling like you're going to make a decision that you will not be able to change. Because each person has their own DNA and each person has their own fingerprint. And it's important not to believe that another person can make a decision for you when they're not authentically you. Yeah. As if they would know better than you what the right thing is for you. Even if they're your parents, they still don't have your DNA. And as people start to make decisions for themselves, large or small, it builds a sense of confidence in themselves. And that also yields a sense of life satisfaction. Okay, fantastic. The third one is facing fears. So it's important to face fears because when people live in a homeostatic environment where they're not pushing themselves forward to test the waters of their competency, and then they're not sure what they're actually capable of doing, and they're living in a homeostatic environment, then they're not sure about what they're continuing to be capable of, then they start to doubt. They start to doubt their self-respect. They start to doubt their self-worth. And so it's important to sort of always live on the edge of what your competency is, not to the point of panic, but what can I do next? How can I push the envelope next? So some people, even if it's just, okay, I'm going to like face the fear and I'm going to learn how to learn a foreign language or I'm going to learn this, take a class in this, or it doesn't matter, but just expanding your horizon, pushing the envelope in any way, just so that you can continue to push the envelope on your competency to show yourself that you can continue to learn new things um, and push the borders on yourself is important because competency is definitely an aspect of living a life satisfied. So the third aspect is facing fears. Fourth is avoiding assumptions. A lot of people make a lot of assumptions about what other people think or what other people are going to do. People do that as a way to preemptively cope with what they think is going to happen like a chess game. So if this person is going to do uh, think this or do that, then I'm going to think this or do that in return. So it's like having six moves down the chessboard in order to protect themselves from different eventualities. The problem with that is that many of these things never happen. So a lot of bandwidth, 
mind share is taken up with actions that never happen at all. And the other problem is that our behavior changes based on things that never happen, based on things that someone is never actually thinking and based on things that another person never is actually going to do. Just things that we worry is going to happen or things that we worry somebody is going to do. I encourage people very strongly to have the frustration tolerance and the patience with the unknown to wait and see whether something actually happens and then only act and believe in your problem-solving abilities to cope if something were actually to happen as opposed to plan for all sorts of eventuations that may never happen. Again, this develops self-confidence in your ability to problem solve and cope should something happen as opposed to believing that you need to preemptively cope with a lot of things that may never happen, which just creates a lot of anxiety. Another aspect that leads to life satisfaction. The fifth component is to avoid people-pleasing behaviors. And the reason for that is because people try to please other people as a means to avoid, create a sense of indispensability and avoid being abandoned. The problem with that is that a lot of times there's a belief in reciprocity from the environment. If I help out with this or I do that, then maybe the environment will treat me in a similar manner. Unfortunately, the outside world is fickle and unreliable, and all you really have control over is your behavior, not other people's response to you. So if you would like to do something for somebody else, that's great, but I don't think that people hoping that a certain behavior will result in kind is going to be effective in terms of securing indispensability in relationships with others. And so people need to believe that they're lovable regardless of whether they are providing a service, whether it's problem solving or helping or guiding another person. Their belief in their lovability, indispensability needs to come from within, not from trying to secure it through reassurance or reinforcement from the outside world, because the outside world is going to be fickle about giving that reassurance and reinforcement on a regular basis. As people develop more of a belief within themselves, reassuring themselves, reinforcing themselves, as opposed to looking without for it instead of within for it, that will also bring about the self-confidence needed for a lifetime of satisfaction. The last component is active self-reinforcement. Active self-reinforcement is tangibly reinforcing yourself for a job well done, whether it's giving yourself a reinforcer because you're working on all these techniques or giving yourself a reinforcer because you've done something else that you're proud of. But instead of delegating reinforcement to um, the outside world, again, that cannot always reinforce you in the way you're looking for because it is fickle and unreliable, feeling comfortable, giving yourself that tangible pat on the back for something that you're proud that you've done. I find that of all the techniques, then this may be surprising, active self-reinforcement is the hardest for people to do. People don't feel like they've earned reinforcers and they struggle very hard with following through on giving themselves 
sort of a, a, a gift of any kind. So although I recommend small gifts, but don't cost a lot of money buying yourself flowers, getting your shoes shined, getting a massage, uh, people really struggle with that aspect of it because people have a hard time feeling like they've earned a reinforcer that they can give themselves as opposed to the comfort level they have when they accept a reinforcer reinforcement from somebody else people are okay if somebody else gives them a gift but they're much more uncomfortable with giving a gift to themselves yeah I've, I've seen that a lot as well and as you were sharing the six core techniques I was thinking about that and how one of the one of the things that I, I'll catch myself doing is create complete and very little celebration and the next and the next and then next. Right. <laughs> and, exactly. And, and exactly. It's like exactly. A- after I wrote my first book, when the when it was done, it was kind of like, okay, next. Without exactly. and I had to really reel myself in and say, you know, this is kind of a big deal. And right. this is exactly. something that you stuck with and that you did to the best right. of your ability and you completed it. And no, you don't get to just run on to the next thing. You get to bask in this for a minute before you move on. Exactly. Oh, these techniques are so, I can see how they're incredibly helpful for sustainable life satisfaction for sure. It's it's interesting because when I watch people start to engage in them, people that have come to me in a lot of existential despair, feeling like they're chasing happy, which is something that I actually don't think is sustainable. And then they start to implement this in their lives and really recognize that the control they have is over themselves, not the outside world. And yeah. and they start to work on this. It's amazing to watch people, their outlook change and they can start to, you know, they, like a pep in their step and oh, <laughs> sure. seem so liberated and relieved. It's just, it's very exciting to watch because it, although it is a very different way of thinking than because most people think so outwardly instead of inwardly, when yeah. people can become more expert at it, it is very liberating. Oh man, I guess so. You said, I embrace and cherish human flaw as an opportunity for growth, redemption, and education. Tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for, for this quote. So, I mean, I think that People see human flaw as a negative. People say that to me all of the time. You know, like I need to be fixed or they chase perfection or something like that. And one of the things that I've noticed always, first of all, I'm not a judgmental person at at all because I always think that growth is an enormous opportunity and without the opportunity for growth, what's the point? Right. right. So I think you always want to have a path to go on. And so if there's no path to go on, then there there's nothing sort of to look forward to. So we should always have an opportunity for more self-actualization. And it's interesting because when I watch a movie or a play or hear a story about somebody that has developed from a place where they struggled with some character flaw or defect and then grew from that to to some self-reflection that encouraged them to make themselves into what they would consider an improved person in that area, even though maybe then they go on and they find some other, you know, thing about themselves that they want to change. I think that's 
amazing and empowering and exciting. Whereas some other people feel like, okay, well, that, you know, well, they still had that flaw and, you know, that's bad. And you can't, like, you can't, they still had that. I don't feel like that. I think that that's a beautiful thing when somebody recognizes that there is an aspect of their character that they may not feel proud of, even if it caused problems in their lives. And then they grow from that and move along a path of bettering themselves and can recognize that. And I think that that's part of what makes humans human is the ability to self-reflect and grow. And I think that that's a powerful and beautiful thing and not a negative. I agree with you wholeheartedly. You have a free guided meditation that you offer on your website. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So I, I think this guided meditation can be useful for a lot of people because it actually has two aspects to it. It has grounding images on it and it also has visual images on it. And what I find is that people are responsive to, sometimes people are responsive to both, but many people are either responsive to more grounding, relaxation images or visually relaxing images. And so the guided imagery provides both so that since not everything works for everybody. Some piece of this may work for most people. Okay. And so then what people can do is they can relate to whatever part of the imagery exercise works for them. So it's about, um, I think it's like five to seven minutes long. And it, because it has enough grounding images and visual images, it gives enough of each of those that it should be relaxing for the majority of people and so I actually have had a lot of clients joke with me that when they put it on their phones and they walk around that they have a lot of people walking around Manhattan which is one of the places where I work uh, listening to my voice as they walk in and out of places that are anxiety provoking for them (laughs) Uh, so that they're like a lot of people in New York are walking around listening to the sound of your voice Uh, and I think that again like in terms of the imagery exercise you know, the grounding images are about sitting on a chair or things like that. But eventually when you practice any imagery exercise, if your brain is cued to relax by the sound of anything from a behavioral perspective, your brain is cued to relax. So if you practice the guided imagery, then when you're listening to it, even if you're walking down the street and you can't really do what I'm asking you to do in the guided imagery, your brain is cued to relax just from hearing the sound of my voice. So you can listen on your iPhone to the sound of my voice and your brain is cued to, oh yeah, I listen to her voice. And even though I can't do these things, I'm supposed to relax when I listen to the sound of her voice. Right, and that's right. really supposed to be the benefit of it is that you don't, it should be that if you practice it, you don't have to sit in a chair and do all the things that I ask you to do but that the tape in and of itself cues your brain to be like, oh, this is supposed to bring me a calming feeling. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. We'll make sure that uh, we have links uh, on the show notes so that people can get that guided meditation at gutmanpsychology.com. And I'm just so grateful that you made time to talk with us today. Uh, What a great conversation. I could talk to you for for much longer. I really appreciate your sharing. And I know that our listeners are going to get a lot from this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I had so much fun talking to you too. It was a pleasure, really. Thank you so much for having me. You are most welcome. 
You can learn more about Dr. Gutman and get her free guided meditation at gutmanpsychology.com. Get everything you need to start slaying your anxiety today. Visit anxietyslayer.teachable.com to claim our free Anxiety Slayer starter course. You get four guided sessions, including an EFT tapping session, guided breathing practice, and special module on overcoming the fear of anxiety. Claim your free Anxiety Slayer starter course at anxietyslayer.teachable.com.